0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. For the last few weeks, we've hit the metaphorical pause button as we're walking through the narrative of Matthew, and instead we've been taking some time to focus on Matthew's use of the Old Testament. Uh, Specifically, a few weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus quoted the Old Testament during the temptation narrative, whenever it was basically him versus the devil, and we also got to see how the devil misused scripture. And then last week, what we did is we were starting to take a look at Matthew's continued use of Old Testament prophecy. We did that a few weeks ago, whenever we were looking at the prophecies in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and then last week we specifically looked at two different prophecies that Matthew either directly quoted or alluded to in reference to John the Baptist. And we're going to do the same exact thing this week, but progressing a little bit further to the end of chapter 3 and moving on to chapter 4 as we talk about some prophecies that are concerning the early ministry of Jesus Christ. But before we did that, I wanted to make one quick note regarding the nature of prophecy prophecy, not because this note has any particular relevance to the video that we're covering today uh, or the prophecies that we're covering today, but just because as I've been working through this and studying it on my own, I thought that this was an important note just to make in general, uh, because to me, I think that this is something that, obvi- uh, that oftentimes gets confused whenever people study the Gospels. Uh, and so let me just read off this slide and I'll explain as we go. In exploring each of these prophecies, we are considering four questions. Firstly, what is the original context of the quoted or referenced prophecy? Secondly, was the prophecy messianic? Uh, in its original context thirdly what was the context of Matthew's quotation and or reference and fourthly how is Matthew using the prophecy Uh, and the main reason I'm trying to approach these prophecies from those four questions is because I just think this is a very helpful way to figure out what the original context was and how the gospel writers are employing those Old Testament verses because what I see a lot of times especially coming from the liberal camps of scholarship is that they'll assert that Matthew and the other gospel writers are misquoting or misusing the scriptures and just kind of twisting them for their own nefarious purposes. And I don't think that's the case. I think that Matthew and the original gospel writers were much smarter than we give them credit for. And I think that the original audiences were much smarter than we give them credit for. And I think that there is actually room for a lot of nuance here. And I think that if you actually examine the original context of the prophecies, you might not see something that is overtly messianic, but through that you might actually be able to arrive at a different conclusion of what the evangelist is asserting Uh, and so that's what i just wanted to clarify here oftentimes skeptics will assert that matthew or the gospel writers are misusing prophecies when they quote a prophecy that isn't overtly messianic however when they do this they fail to realize that the evangelists have more goals than merely proving that jesus is the messiah right so a lot of times we look at prophecies and we will go look at the original context and we'll say wow that prophecy doesn't seem like it has anything to do with the messiah and you know what i'm here to tell you right here and right now it might not have to do with the messiah because it's not like whenever matthew mark luke and john are quoting prophecies they're only thinking hmm let me see if i can find all the stuff that proves jesus is the messiah now don't get me wrong if there are prophecies about the messiah in the old testament jesus needed to fulfill those or at least lay the groundwork for fulfilling them in the future so he does need to do that but the gospel writers are focused on asserting a lot more than Jesus simply being the Messiah. They have a lot they want to communicate about Jesus. And I think you see one good example of this just in John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, verse 36, he cites that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy whenever he died and none of his bones had been broken. He says that Jesus' bones not being broken were a fulfillment of prophecy, but when you explore the original context of that passage, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll see that the bones not being broken thing, that was about the Passover lamb. It wasn't about the Messiah, right? And so you can look at that and you're saying, wow, are you saying that in some way the passage in Exodus about a Passover lamb's bones not being broken was some way messianic? Well, I don't think that the original audience would have viewed it that way. No, I think that it was simply about the standards about, uh, of a Passover lamb and an unblemished sacrifice. It couldn't have had broken bones. And so whenever you actually look at what John is asserting in his gospel, I don't think that his point in verse 36 is that Jesus is the Messiah. I think that his point is that jesus is the greater passover lamb and so we have to realize that the original context might not be messianic but john isn't employing it in a messianic way he is employing it in its original context the original context was about the passover lamb and that is what he is asserting about jesus in that very verse however if you go to the very next verse in the gospel of john you'll see that he quotes another prophecy that is messianic whenever he says that they looked on him whom they have pierced. And so if you look at verses 36 and 37 of the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John, he's actually making two separate points about Jesus. One is that he is the Passover lamb. Secondly, is that he is the Messiah. And so whenever we go look at Old Testament scriptures, we don't need to force them into the messianic bubble in order for them to be about Jesus. Because Jesus is the Messiah, yes, but he is also so much more. More than the messiah as we're going to see in the gospel of matthew in the very next chapter that we're going to be covering very soon in the sermon on the mount jesus came to fulfill the law as we saw in chapter three he is here to fulfill all righteousness jesus is the messiah but he's also so much more he is the passover lamb and he's also god I don't know if you noticed this in the last chapter, like in the last video that we just covered, but in the original context of the prophecy about John the Baptist, of him being a voice crying in the wilderness, in the original context of Isaiah, Isaiah, who is the voice preparing the people for? He's preparing the people for the arrival of Yahweh, right? A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for Yahweh. Well, John is preparing the way for Jesus. And so if you look at the original context of Isaiah, we talked about this in the last video. The context isn't immediately messianic. It is about God showing up to deliver the people from exile. Well, John looks at that and he says, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness preparing the way for Yahweh. And then Jesus shows up. And so the passage isn't overtly messianic, but that's because in that passage, we're not proving that Jesus is the Messiah. We're proving that Jesus is god and so i just think this is an important clarification for us to realize because a lot of times scholars will say that the evangelists are misusing scripture when really they're not maybe they just have a different point than jesus simply being the messiah maybe they're actually saying something else about jesus so my whole point in clarifying this is that not all prophecies need to be messianic in nature to be applied to jesus sometimes the authors might have other purposes And again, this isn't necessarily relevant to the present discussion, it's just worth noting. Uh, It is something that I was reflecting on just in between filming the last video and this video, and so I thought I'd throw it in here just because I thought it was an important clarification to make. But that all being said, that was actually a really long introduction that has very little to do with what we're actually discussing today, so let's move on and let's actually begin to talk about these prophecies. Last week, we talked about two specific prophecies, one of which was directly quoted in Matthew and one of which was merely alluded to whenever he talked about John. John the Baptist being the voice crying in the wilderness from Isaiah chapter 40, and then he also identified John the Baptist as a prophet like Elijah, which is a reference to Malachi chapters 3 and 4. 4. What I want to do today is I want to move to the second two prophecies that Matthew cites in chapters 3 and 4, and these are going to be prophecies about the ministry of Jesus. The first one is going to be a blend of two different passages that is merely alluded to whenever the Father speaks about Jesus at his baptism, uh, and then the second one is going to be one that Matthew directly cites uh, whenever Jesus moves to Galilee. Uh, and so maybe what I can do before we actually move into these prophecies and actually examine the original context is we can just read them, right? And so in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, right when Jesus is getting baptized, we read this. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As we're going to see, this uh, this speech, a very short speech, very concise speech from the mouth of the Father on behalf of Jesus is actually a blend of two Old Testament passages, Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to look at both of those in this video. Uh, And then if you move on into chapter 4, about midway through, uh, this is what Matthew cites directly in relationship to Jesus moving to Capernaum. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet would be fulfilled saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, a light has dawned. Uh, And so that is, like Matthew points out, it is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is super important to the Gospel of Matthew. And what I want to do over the course of this video is I want to look at all three references being made in those two prophecies. And we're just going to look at the original context. We're going to ask, is it messianic? We're going to look at Matthew's context, and we're going to ultimately come to conclusions about how Matthew is using it. And so, let's walk through it. Uh, the first one comes from Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the first thing that is being referenced here, not so subtly, is Psalm chapter two, the second Psalm in the entire Psalter. Uh, And just for some context, uh, oftentimes people forget that there is a context to the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms have a structure to them. Uh, They're separated into five different books. And what we see is that Psalms one and two find themselves in the mid, in the very beginning of book one. And really Psalms chapter one and two seem to be introductory psalms to the inside, entire Psalter, right? There's 150 psalms in the entire Psalter, and Psalms 1 and 2 are introductory psalms that basically lay the groundwork for the general themes that you will find in the 148 psalms to follow. And Psalm chapter 2 is all about the anointed one of Yahweh, the promised king who will come. This is what we read in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain basically what we see in the opening verses of this psalm is that the psalmist is meditating on the fact that all the nations who oppose God and his anointed one are plotting in vain, and they are plotting a very futile thing, and God himself laughs at them, and he almost mocks them because they think that they can overthrow God's anointed one. Uh, and it's actually just beautiful imagery, right? You have all these nations gathering together and they're trying to destroy the anointed one. And he who sits in, heaven's la- in the heavens laughs and Lord mocks them, right? God thinks this is hilarious. He's like, you think that you can overthrow my anointed one? You stand no chance. I have established my king on high. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. This is what the psalms is saying. I will tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you, right? This is my son. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So here we see who the psalmist is. The psalmist is the anointed one, right? He is speaking on behalf of the anointed one of God. The anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach, the Messiah. And the psalmist speaking as the Messiah says, this is what God has decreed to me. He has said unto me, you are my son, right? This is my son. This is what Matthew is quoting. Apparently, God and the Messiah have a father-son relationship. The Messiah is the son of God. And he says that he will give the nations as his inheritance, the ends of the earth as the possession. So he is going to give all authority, all dominion unto the Messiah. This is imagery that the prophet Daniel will pick up whenever he talks about the son of man riding on the clouds. But interestingly, the son of man in Daniel is going to be presented as a divine figure. And so you have to reconcile this idea of God giving unto God all authority in heaven and on earth whenever that's also something that's described as given unto the Messiah. You see that if you look at all these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and tie them together, you get the idea that maybe the Messiah is going to be more than just a man. And so the psalm concludes, So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this lays the groundwork for all the psalms to come right? The anointed one will not meet destruction. God will take care of his anointed one. God will take care of his beloved. God will take care of his son. And so if you are any people belonging to the surrounding nations, you better fear God and you better suck up to his anointed one. And so that's the original context of this. So to summarize it, Psalm 2 serves as one of the introductory Psalms to the entire Psalter, establishing one of the central themes of the book as a whole. Yahweh's relationship with his Mashiach, with his Anointed One, with his Christ. And sure enough, if you look at the other Psalms, you'll see that this is an ongoing theme throughout the entire Psalter. Uh, And many people would argue that actually the structure of the Psalms is structured around a theology of the Messiah and a, a a, a theology of the Christ. The psalmist ponders why the nations would be so foolish as to plot against Yahweh and his Mashiach when their plans will be so easily thwarted by Yahweh, who laughs at their futile efforts and reminds them of his immutable plans. The Mashiach speaks, Yahweh has declared him his son and is bound to give him an eternal dominion and inheritance. He will judge over all the nations. And once again, these are the verses that Matthew cites as being fulfilled in Jesus whenever God says, this is my beloved son. He is definitely referencing Psalm 2 when God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The psalmist gives the kings of the nations advice, serve Yahweh and suck up to the Mashiach lest he judge them in his fury. Right, So this is what that whole psalm is about. It's a very short psalm, very concise, only 12 verses long, but it gives you an introductory theology of the Messiah. Suck up to him and make sure that when the Messiah shows up, you're fearing God and you're responding to the Messiah correctly. That being said, is this messianic? This is one of the most overtly messianic passages in all scripture, if you haven't already picked up on that by how I'm talking about it. This is a clearly messianic psalm because it literally uses the word mashiach. While it speaks generally of all mashiachs, that is, of all those belonging to the royal line of David, it anticipates complete fulfillment in an ultimate mashiach to arrive from David's line. Uh, This is just an important thing to clarify, right? Whenever we talk about the word messiah, you have to realize that Jesus is not the only messiah right? A Messiah just means anointed one. And really there were a lot of different people who were anointed prophets, priests, and Kings. All of these people were anointed people. They were all Mashiachs. The term was specifically uh, employed uh, throughout scripture in reference to the Kings of Israel, right? So King Saul was an anointed one. He was a Mashiach. That's why David would not touch him. That's why David did not want to kill him. Even whenever he found him in the cave and whenever he found him asleep in the middle of a field right? David would not touch Saul because Saul was a Mashiach. He was a Messiah. David was also a Messiah. And all of David's family line was Messiahs, right? They were Messiahs. That's what they were. They were anointed ones by God. They were set apart. They were special. And so whenever we read God having a theology about anointed ones, throughout scripture, you have to realize that this isn't only speaking about the Messiah, capital M. This is talking about, in general, the Messiahs, right? It is talking about the anointed ones of God, specifically with an eye towards the royal line of David, because you have to realize that Saul's line was just him, right? He was the only king from that line. And after that, you have David and all of his family being the royal kings appointed by God. And so the theology of the Messiah doesn't just apply to the ultimate Messiah. It also applies to all the Messiahs in between, right? little m messiahs that anticipated the one to come so you have david solomon rehoboam and going on through that line even whenever you get to people like ahaz and hezekiah those are little m messiahs from our perspective obviously in hebrew there's no capital letters or lowercase letters or anything like that but the idea is that these people were all anointed ones and therefore you have this theology of how god would treat his royal line in light of the promise that he made to David, right? He said uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would be like a father to David's children, right? And so you have this father-son relationship going forward. However, this psalm is very clearly anticipating the fact that there will be one ultimate capital M Messiah to show up unto whom God will give all eternal dominion. In many ways, the psalm itself is an introduction to Christology, which is just a fancy term for theology of the Messiah, Christ meaning Messiah. It elaborates on one, his father-son relationship with Yahweh, which you also see in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, It also elaborates on the scope of his future kingdom over all the peoples of the earth. That's how we know that this psalm is not just about the sons of David in general, but specifically the ultimate one who will be given a dominion over Everything. Thirdly, it elaborates on the certainty of his reign. Fourthly, it elaborates on the authority of his judgment. And fifthly, it elaborates on the role of his reign alongside Yahweh. That is, people's reception of him is indicative of their relationship to God. Uh, And so, really, this psalm is a nice introduction to how the Old Testament views the Messiah to be Um, in short term in regards to the little m Messiahs from the line of David, but ultimately what the expected hope is of the capital M Messiah to show up. And so this psalm is overtly messianic, and so you could see why Matthew would feel the need to reference it in Matthew chapters 1 through 4 whenever he's demonstrating that Jesus has a claim to the throne. But then we also enter into this other part of the phrase, because Jesus, God didn't just say, this is my beloved son, he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and that also seems to be a reference to another passage, which is also overtly messianic, and that's Isaiah 42. And we've just got these four verses right here. This is what God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice and truth. He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. This right here is one of the servant songs of Isaiah. It's actually the first servant song that we find, and it's only found two chapters after the chapter that we quoted last week about... uh, about John the Baptist, right? A voice crying in the wilderness. That's Isaiah chapter 40. This is found at the very beginning of that shift in structure of the book of Isaiah. I talked about this last week, how Isaiah is kind of split into really two main parts, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. Chapters 1 through 39, broadly speaking, are more focused on the judgment facing the people of Judah as a result of their sin. And chapters 40 through 66, in many ways, are focusing on the hope that God will restore unto Judah through the Messiah and through the eternal resurrection restoration that he will eventually bring about. And so depending on what passage is quoting for, even the, like there's a lot of messianic stuff in the early chapters of Isaiah as well, but most of those are in the context of judgment. And so depending on what Matthew's quoting, you'll see that there might be a different context to be found about what he's ultimately communicating. And chapter 42 is a very hopeful, hopeful, hopeful passage because it is about the servant of God who's going to show up. They're going to receive the spirit of God and ultimately Through them, justice and righteousness will be established. So the original context is this. Isaiah 42 chapters 1 through 4 is the first of four servant songs found in Isaiah, the other three being found in chapter 49, chapter 50, and then chapters 52 and 53. 52 and 53 is probably one of the most most popular passages in all scripture because that's the one where you get to hear about the suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Our sin will be placed on him. In each of these four servant songs is portraying the royal servant of Yahweh, an individual who represents Israel in its ideal form and accomplishes God's purposes on their behalf. Right? And so some people will debate about whether or not this servant is the Messiah, uh, but at the very least, uh, we can say that this servant represents an idyllic form of Israel. They can't be Israel because Israel just doesn't fulfill this, right? Some people will try to suggest that it is talking about Israel, but... It really isn't. Uh, It's an ideal form of Israel, and it seems to be embodied in one particular person who is living out Israel's story and accomplishing God's purposes on their behalf. In this song, Yahweh himself introduces us to the servant as someone, one, whom he has chosen, secondly, in whom he delights, and thirdly, on whom his spirit rests. And that's all in the very first part of the first verse. The servant is presented as a royal king who serves not just Israel, but all the world by establishing justice and truth, winning over the hearts of the peoples from afar by his resolute goodness and unwavering character. You can see how these two blend, like how Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 can blend together to form this nice and neat Christology, right? You've got this king who will be given eternal dominion over all the nations by God, and he has a father-son relationship with God. In Psalm chapter 2, and then Isaiah 42, you've got this chosen, delightful, spirit-given servant of God who will serve the entire nations by establishing justice and truth. You can see all these blend together to form a nice and neat Christology and views of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 42, is it messianic? While some rabbinic scholars have tried to argue that the servant songs of Isaiah speak of Israel as a people and are not messianic, the more natural reading of the text is that they speak of an individual servant king figure who leads both Israel and the nations. In that case, the text is most certainly messianic. Uh, and I just want to be clear that most rabbinic scholars who argue that the servant songs are not about the Messiah but about Israel, most of those arguments have come as counter arguments against christianity they were not the original interpretations of those scholars Uh, i think that traditionally speaking and historically speaking these songs have been viewed as messianic but uh, ever since the advent of christianity uh, we have seen that a lot of like basically rabbinic interpretations of a lot of prophecies has shifted as a result of the rise of christianity to where they have kind of changed how they interpret certain things so i think that this is a very clearly messianic prophecy and people might debate about this but i think that if you just examine the context of isaiah it's most clearly messianic the text establishes key christological expectations he will be a royal king who leads by serving he is chosen by yahweh and anointed with the spirit establishing justice and equity wherever he goes governed by a character of unwavering devotion and righteousness You can see how a lot of these things could be employed by Matthew to set up Jesus going out into the wilderness to be tested, to demonstrate that he is a man of unwavering devotion and righteousness. That all being said, now that we've looked at the original context of Psalms 2 and Isaiah 42, let's go and recap Matthew's context and see how he might be implementing these verses whenever he um, combines them together and quotes the Father. Matthew identifies John the Baptist as the voice and messenger who prepares the way for Yahweh, while John, by his own admission, prepares the way for Jesus. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he is baptized by John in order to, quote, fulfill all righteousness. Matthew takes care to record the Spirit's descent upon Jesus and the Father's words from heaven, which are a concise blend of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Later on in his gospel, Matthew will specifically cite Isaiah's servant song, the one we just quoted, as one of the many prophecies Jesus directly fulfilled, right? So whenever we get to Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be revisiting this prophecy and see how Matthew is using it there. But right here, he is at least referencing it, right? Because whenever the thought, like, really, it's not even Matthew himself, who is referencing these prophecies, it is God who is referencing them, and Matthew is simply quoting God, right? God, who himself inspired the scripture to be written, is blending these two together so that you clearly recognize what's going on here. And so how is Matthew using these prophecies? Well, the first way is that he is identifying Jesus as the Son of God from Psalm 2. That is, he is god's messiah the anointed one the greater fulfillment of the hope anticipated in the psalms and the prophets god himself has publicly identified him as his son and thus his reign is certain and anyone who rejects him engages in futility right that is the message of psalm chapter two right if anybody tries to oppose this guy they are going to be destroyed and so if god is asserting this about jesus then right here at jesus baptism god is making a point about jesus if you reject him, you're going to be destroyed. And so you should respond properly to him and you should receive him because this is God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. You should kiss the son lest he be angry. This lest he be angry, <laughs> not angry. I'm hungry right now because I have eaten. I haven't eaten yet this morning, <laughs> but you want to kiss the son lest he be angry. Right. And so If you're anybody who is watching this happen, if you see Jesus being baptized and you hear the Father saying this from heaven, you're saying, ooh, maybe I should be on this guy's good side if this is God's son. He will receive all authority to judge the earth, and one's response to him is indicative of one's response to God, right? This is something that we saw that was really key in Psalm chapter 2. How one receives the son is indicative of how they receive Yahweh. Right. It says, fear Yahweh and kiss the son. They go part and parcel, hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. This is very similar to what John's going to say in his gospel. Whenever he says, he who has the son has the father and he who does not have the son does not have the father. Right. In order to get to God, you need Jesus. Jesus is the way to the father. And that's exactly what God is communicating, what the Father is communicating when he identifies Jesus as his son. He is saying, hey, this guy in front of you is the promised Messiah from Psalm chapter 2, unto whom all authority will be given. And if you want to respond properly to me, you have to respond properly to him first. That is what God is asserting whenever he identifies Jesus as his beloved son. And Matthew is quick to pick up on that, and he finds it necessary to quote this. Because, I mean, if the Father himself is identifying Jesus as this, of course Matthew is going to quote this if he's trying to demonstrate that Jesus has a valid claim to the throne. By God's own admission, he has the only claim to the throne. But in addition to this, Matthew is identifying Jesus as the servant of God from Isaiah chapter 42. That is the royal and chosen king, the judge and servant who delights God's heart, is anointed by his spirit and is destined to rule over all the nations in justice and equity, unwavering in his righteous character. I don't think it should be a surprise to us that the servant in whom God is well pleased in Isaiah 42 is described as having the spirit come to rest upon him. Behold, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. We literally see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus as a dove. Yeah, while God is saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So we see that Matthew sees what God is doing, and therefore he feels the need to quote these, because to his original audience, this is probably the strongest argument for Jesus' messiahship thus far. Not only is he fulfilling prophecy, and not only does Matthew interpret him as fulfilling prophecy, But the Father in heaven interprets Jesus as fulfilling prophecy and specifically cites those two prophecies in order to identify Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, this is Jesus. He's a cool guy. He says, hey, this is a Jesus who is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42. He is the royal Messiah, the son of God, the servant of God, unto whom all authority will be given. So you better suck up to him because he is the one who will establish justice and righteousness and you don't want to be on his bad side. That is how Matthew is using these prophecies in Jesus's baptism. And it's absolutely spectacular and beautiful, but at the same time, it's super understated because Matthew doesn't say this happened in order to fulfill prophecy. He doesn't say that. Instead, he trusts that the original audience, the God-fearing Jews who would have known the scriptures, they can read this and they'd say, whoa, God himself just said that Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy and he didn't even draw attention to it. That being said, Matthew does draw attention to another prophecy, and this is the seventh prophecy that Matthew is going to cite that Jesus fulfilled, and therefore, this is the final prophecy he's going to cite about Jesus in authenticating that Jesus is the Messiah, which means that this is a super, super important moment, right? Uh, Because first off, seven is a significant number. He cited seven direct prophecies in Matthew chapters one through four, but also we find this section of Matthew coming to a close, right? And to me, From studying the gospel of Matthew for a while, it seems to me that Matthew chapters one through four are specifically the section where Matthew is trying to get his audience engaged, right? Matthew chapters one through four is where he is saying, hey guys, this guy is the Messiah. And if you don't believe me, let me prove it to you. That's what Matthew chapters one through four serve the purpose of. Once you get to Matthew chapters five and moving onwards, his audience is bought in and they are simply on, they're along for the journey, right? And then you get to flesh out what exactly the Messiah will be going forward but chapters one through four is where he is really trying to win his audience's attention and favor and belief and so as we reach this final prophecy matthew is really trying to make it clear who this jesus guy is so let's look at the context of this passage because whenever jesus moves to galilee matthew says this was in fulfillment of the prophet isaiah and he's citing isaiah chapter nine so let's look at the context i'm going to start at the end of chapter eight now, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists to whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the law, to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn and they will pass through the land, hard pressed and hungry. And it will be that when they are hungry, they will be angry and curse their God, uh, their King and their God as they face upward. Then they will, uh, Yeah, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be banished into thick darkness. Uh, So without the context, that might sound kind of confusing, but what's happening right here is Isaiah is rebuking the people of Judah for not trusting in God. Uh, At this time period, and I'm going to recap this again in a few slides, Um, but at this time period, you had two people, Assyria and Israel, or Aram and Israel, depending Aram and Syria, the same thing. Assyria and Israel were both trying to attack the people of Judah to try to force them into a coalition to oppose the Assyrians. People of Judah did not want to do this. Uh, And we've talked about this passage a little bit before because this is the same context of Isaiah chapter 7 whenever you read the prophecy about the virgin giving birth to a son. Same exact context, right? So you have the people of Israel and Assyria coming down and they're trying to wage war on the people of Judah. And God basically says, you don't have to worry about those guys because Israel and Syria, they're going to be destroyed very, very soon. However, who you do need to worry about is the Assyrians because you've been sinning and these Assyrians are going to come in and they are going to lay judgment upon you. So he calls the people of Judah to repent and turn back to him. But the people of Judah aren't doing it. Instead, they're turning to mediums and they're turning to spiritists and they're turning to sorcerers and they're turning to all these false prophets in order to try to figure out how they can best overcome all these nations that are opposing them. And God says, if you keep doing this, you're looking for a dawn That is not going to come, right? Because basically the people, like the imagery is that the people are lost in the middle of this darkness because they're surrounded by all these opposing forces. And they are turning to all these false teachers and these mediums and these spiritists and these necromancers. They're turning to them trying to figure out a light at the end of the tunnel, a way to get out of this dark situation. And God says, if you keep looking to the wrong people, you're looking for a dawn that's not going to happen, right? You're going to be left in darkness. However, going on into chapter nine, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is interesting. Uh, What we see at this time period, this is written in in the 700s BC, uh, and this is around the time period whenever the northern kingdom of Israel fell. The northern kingdom fell in 713 BC, I believe it was. The southern kingdom of Judah wouldn't fall for another 150 years, 586 BC is whenever that would fall. Uh, and so the southern kingdom has a while before they're going to fall, whereas the northern kingdom is on the verge of collapse, and so if you're the southern kingdom, you're probably looking at the northern kingdom, and you're thinking, oh man, y'all, y'all are the ones really lying in darkness, y'all are the ones who really need to get your act together, because y'all stand no chance, right, the Assyrians are totally going to destroy y'all, because that's exactly what was happening at this time period, the Assyrians were plowing through Syria and Israel in fulfillment of what God had promised would happen to them, right? So these people were being judged, but the people of Judah were looking to everybody other than God to save them. And therefore God says, hey, those people that you're looking down upon, the people of Israel, if you're not careful and if you don't repent, I'm actually going to do my impressive things through them. And those people, starting in verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who will live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them, right? So he's basically indicting the people of Judah. And he says, if you keep turning to all these other sources for your help and for your aid, I'm just going to go to the people of Israel who you look down upon and who you think are walking in greater darkness. And the light of my hope and salvation, it's going to show up with them rather than with you. Because you are looking down on them because of their situations But it's going to be even worse for you because you are looking for a dawn that's not going to come. For those people, they are walking in darkness. You're right. But the light will shine in the midst of the darkness while you're still walking in darkness. So God is really using this whole thing as a judgment on the people of Judah. He is so furious with them and he is so mad that they are refusing to repent. That he says, you know what? I'm going to go do an amazing thing in the land up north. Those people, at least they are being humbled and they're learning their lesson. I'm going to go show myself to them as judgment against you. But then he continues talking. You shall multiply the nation. You shall make great their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This is talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. For you shall shatter the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their taskmaster as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the rumbling of battle and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now, this is the exciting part that you might uh, remember from all these Christmas things. Like whenever we celebrate Christmas, you hear this all the time. "For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. You can't look at verses six and seven and say that those are not messianic. But here is the point of the, of Isaiah's entire thing. He's turning to the people of Judah and he says, "If you don't repent, I will preserve." Well, Isaiah speaking on behalf of God. He turns to the people of Judah. If you don't repent. God will bring forth his Messiah and he will preserve David's line, but he's not going to show up in Judah, right? He's going to show up in the region of Galilee and those who walk in darkness, the people that you look down upon, the Northern kingdom of Israel, who doesn't even have David's royal line on the throne right now. They're the ones who are going to meet the king first because you did not repent. And this is a brutal indictment because if you think about it, where was David born? In Bethlehem, which is in the region of Judah. Where was David's capital? In Jerusalem, which is in the region of Judah. Where was David's royal line currently enthroned? In the southern kingdom of Judah. What tribe was David from? Judah, right? All the things associated with the Messiah were from the southern kingdom of Judah. When the northern kingdom split apart from the southern kingdom, they established another person on the throne who was not from the line of David. And they had several different dynasties, none of whom were de- descended from David. Right? And so the northern kingdom naturally was looked down upon by the southern kingdom because the southern kingdom inherently thought that they were better. And God says, if you don't repent and if you don't turn to me, I'm going to bring the Messiah from the line of David and from the tribe of Judah. And he's going to be born in Bethlehem and he's going to one day reign in Jerusalem. But y'all aren't going to be the ones who have the privilege of meeting him first. Instead, the child will be born and the son will be given. But he's not gonna be given to Judah. He's gonna be given to Galilee. The government will one day rest upon his shoulders in Jerusalem and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end or increase to the government of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will sit. But the Galileans are gonna be the ones who meet him first. The Northern kingdom, which you look down upon, those who walked in darkness, they will see the great light while you are going to be the ones left in the darkness. So this is a brutal judgment on the people of Judah. The thing that they've been hoping for, the thing that they long for, is going to be deprived of them because of their hard-heartedness. So to summarize the original context, in 735 BC, which is shortly before the ultimate fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, Isaiah promised Ahaz that he needn't fear Aram and Israel who were seeking to invade from the north. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. In the midst of that, you get the prophecy about the virgin giving birth to a son. Instead, he needed to fear Assyria, who would destroy Aram and Israel and nearly destroy Judah. That's the back half of chapter 7 into the first half of chapter 8. Though the people think they're safe, Yahweh warns them that they aren't safe. Since they turn to mediums and spiritists instead of the law of Yahweh to discern when the dark will give way to dawn, they will be left in darkness. Right? So since they're not turning to God and they're trying to turn to everything else in order to lift them from the darkness, God says, they are going to be left in that darkness they are in a dark where there is no dawn instead as judgment against judah the light will dawn in the northern kingdom of israel who were at isaiah's time already nearly destroyed by assyria like i mentioned in just a few years israel will collapse under the assyrians and will be taken away those who walked in darkness will see a great light while judah will be sentenced to to darkness so you have this entire flip-flop the people of judah thought they were in darkness but they thought that israel was in deeper darkness the people of judah thought that they had a way out and that's why they were turning to the mediums and the spiritists they thought the pe- that the people of israel were totally screwed god says no the people who walked in darkness will see a great light the throne of david will be re-established <clears throat> yet it will first appear in israel not in judah the light of david will spark in the region of Galilee. That is the message that Isaiah is communicating to the people of Judah, and it is not a happy one, which is exactly what I pointed out. Remember how I said that Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 are more of a downer and they're more about judgment? Yeah, the Messiah is still there, but it's judgment against the people of Judah because the people of Judah are not repenting, right? That's why in chapters 40 through 66, God has to comfort them because chapter 39 ends with him saying, hey guys, since you didn't repent, I'm going to send you into captivity in Babylon, which is exactly what happens 150 years later. They're taken into captivity, and therefore chapters 40 through 66 is Isaiah promising comfort and hope for those who go into exile. So, is this passage messianic? This text is overtly messianic. Ironically, though, Matthew doesn't quote from the most messianic portion of the text, which demonstrates his reliance on context in communicating his point. Uh, I actually really like this, because Matthew could quote the overtly messianic part, which is just a few verses later, um, but he doesn't do that. And I think that this is proof of what I've been suggesting all along, which is that Matthew is relying on the context of these passages to make his point. He's not making these pass, he's not quoting these things in isolation. You actually have to examine the broader context of these passages in order to understand what Matthew is asserting, right? Cause he could quote, a child has been born to us. A son has been given to us, but he doesn't do that. He quotes the verses a few verses earlier, uh, the ones which are more relevant to his story. And therefore, you have to go read the original context and understand the original context in order to understand what he is saying. The text is also surrounded by messianic passages, some of which are clearly messianic, such as the shoot from Jesse, which comes in chapter 11, and others of which are more obscure, such as the virgin birth, which is in Isaiah chapter 7, and which we already talked about um, earlier on in this series. That being said, let's review Matthew's context, let's talk about how he uses this prophecy, and let's wrap this video up. So after being baptized by John, Jesus is tested in the wilderness, passing the test with flying colors, and therefore demonstrating that he is the son of God and the servant of Yahweh that was talked about in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42 because he had unblemished, righteous character. Upon hearing of John's arrest in Judea, Jesus departs to live in Galilee. Matthew cites this as fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In Galilee, Jesus preaches the same message John preached, gathering disciples and growing in popularity until the people come from all over seeking to follow him. Uh, So how does Matthew use this prophecy? Also, it's probably worth noting that the last people to come follow him in that passage at the end of chapter four are the people from Jerusalem and Judea. Um, So those are the last people to come (laughs) follow him. Surprise, surprise. How does Matthew use this prophecy? Well, firstly, Matthew identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the heir of David's throne, and thus the light which keeps the lamp of Israel from being extinguished. Uh, that is very beautiful imagery that you find in, the, in 2 Samuel, whenever the people are talking about King David. Uh, he is the lamp of Israel, and they don't want him to be extinguished. Jesus' presence testifies to the faithfulness of Yahweh, and he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal Father, and Prince of Peace, who will reign over David's kingdom forever. Right? So, this is where Matthew is using this final prophecy as identifying Jesus as the Messiah. I've asserted that that is what this whole section is about. Matthew chapters 1 through 4 is him trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the perfect passage to read about that right? Because that's what the passage is about. Isaiah chapter seven is saying, hey, if you don't repent, the Messiah is going to show up in Galilee. Well, apparently the people of Judah didn't repent. So the Messiah shows up in Galilee and Matthew says, this is him. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazarene. And now he is going to Galilee and he's going to make himself known in Galilee. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And so that is how Matthew is choosing to close this section. He's identifying Jesus as the Messiah. But if you're a person who is reading this gospel, and if you are from the region of Judea, this probably won't be very encouraging to you because there's one more thing that Matthew is doing with this passage as he closes off this section. Matthew uses Jesus's departure to Galilee as an indictment against the people of Judah, which at that time was known as Judea, who have already tried to kill their king We saw that in chapter 2, and have rejected his forerunner by arresting him. Since they reject their Messiah, he reveals his light to those in Galilee, who Judeans viewed as walking in darkness. So you see that the context is key in understanding what Matthew is asserting, right? Matthew didn't just simply say, hmm, I wonder where Galilee shows up in the Old Testament. To be fair, Galilee only shows up, I think, like the word Galilee, I think it shows up like four times in the entire Old Testament. And so Matthew could have done that. But that's not what he did. Instead, he saw what Jesus did here, and he realizes exactly why he's doing it. This is an indictment against the people of Judah, just like it was back in Isaiah's day. Isaiah said, people of Judah, if you don't repent, then things aren't going to go well for you. And the Messiah is going to go to Galilee, and that's judgment against you because you have been rejecting God, and you've been turning to things other than God. Well, we just saw in Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah 42 that the way you respond to the Messiah is indicative of how you're responding to God, right? He who receives the Son receives the Father. He who does not receive the Son does not receive the Father. Jesus is the way to the Father, right? You see that in the Gospel of John explicitly, but Matthew is already laying the groundwork for that theology through the prophecies that he's citing here. Well, the people are not responding to the Messiah well, right? Jesus is born. And the king of Israel at that time period, Herod the Great, he tries to have the Messiah killed. The forerunner of the Messiah shows up and he's taken into custody and arrested. The people of Judah are not responding properly to God. They are not responding properly to these things that have been prophesied. And therefore, Jesus departs and he goes to Galilee. And that is judgment against the people of Judah. And what we're going to see is that most of Jesus' ministry takes place in Galilee. That is what Matthew is asserting in these passages, and that's why I think it's important for us to study the original context of these passages in order to better understand Matthew's gospel, and so I hope that you'll forgive me for not moving through the narrative of the gospel of Matthew as quickly as we might want, but I think it's worth it to actually go back and examine these passages in their original context, because I think that in the long run, it will leave us with a greater understanding of Matthew's gospel and what he's trying to communicate, and hopefully a greater love for Jesus, because that's obviously the whole goal of this. I'm not just here to talk about this gospel because it doesn't have any purpose in our lives. It's because it has the single most purpose in our lives, because it is going to draw us to fall in love with Jesus and to not respond to him how the people of Judea were responding at this time period. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.